Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Dr. Jordan Burdine, and I am a neonatal clinical pharmacy specialist at UTMB Health in Galveston, Texas, and I will be your host for today's episode. With me today is Dr. Tara Smith, who is a clinical pharmacy specialist in pediatric pharmacy at HCA Florida West Hospital in Pensacola, Florida. Thanks for joining us today, Tara. Let's get into today's topic of excipients and dyes in pediatric medications. The first discussion topic for today is what are excipients and why is it important for pharmacists to evaluate if medications contain excipients for pediatric patients? Well, thanks, Jordan, for that introduction. And I would like to get right into that. Excipients are defined by the FDA and the Code of Federal Regulation in 210.3 as any component other than an active ingredient. The International Pharmaceutical Excipients Council, or IPEC, also goes a step further and defines excipients as substances other than the active pharmaceutical ingredient, which have been appropriately evaluated for safety and are intentionally included in a drug delivery system. This is important because medications are complex mixtures of natural or synthetic active ingredients, fillers, dyes, and flavorings. Many drugs contain more inactive ingredients than active ingredients. Some excipients are also derived from food sources. Patients with dietary restrictions may have reactions to these excipients if they're found in their medications. Also, some patients have sensitivities to inactive ingredients and have adverse reactions when consumed. So patients need to be aware of what their medications contain in addition to the active ingredient that is treating their condition. In 2020, the Pediatric Pharmacy Association published a list of drugs that are high risk of adverse drug reactions for pediatric patients. It's called the KIDS list, are key potentially inappropriate drugs in pediatrics. This list contains 67 drugs and 10 excipients that should be used with caution in children. Of the excipients, six were recommended for avoidance in children and four were recommended to be used with caution. Of note, this list further differentiates five of those excipients that are harmful in neonates to be avoided in this population. Thanks, Tara, for that explanation. Do you mind telling us what is the difference in excipients and inactive ingredients? Well, excipients and inactive ingredients are different terms for basically the same thing. They're classified by the functions they perform in a pharmaceutical dosage form. Bulk materials, which consist of the most commonly used excipients, are essential to the manufacturing process as they contribute to the product's uniformity, stability, flow characteristics, and compressibility. Some of the more common excipients are binders, disintegrants, glidants, which help with flow, compression aids, dyes, sweeteners, preservatives, and suspension agents. Interesting. Are preservatives and dyes considered excipients? Yes. Preservatives are added to ingredients to enhance the shelf life of a product. While they don't provide a clinical benefit, they are necessary to allow stability and extended use of products. Dyes are also inactive ingredients, but are used to help brand products and are usually matched to the indication of the product. For example, blue is often used in medications that are for soothing or sleep. Green is used in many GI medications. Cardiovascular drugs may be red. And orange or yellow may be used to identify the flavor of a liquid as citrus. 
Do excipients have clinical effects? And if so, how does this affect children and medication? Excipients are not meant to have a clinical effect beyond the expected effects of the active pharmaceutical ingredient. But sometimes people with certain allergies or sensitivities will have a response to an excipient, a preservative, or a dye. So we need to differentiate between drug intolerance versus an adverse drug reaction and an allergic reaction. An intolerance is a non-immunological response similar to an adverse drug reaction. Of all reactions, this type occurs the most frequently, about 85 to 90% of all reactions. These are usually known side effects of a drug, like ibuprofen making someone nauseous or antibiotics causing diarrhea or antihistamines making someone sleepy. Intolerances are mostly just uncomfortable effects, but don't usually have any clinical meaning unless they continue after the medication is stopped. An allergic reaction is an unintended response, mostly mediated by immunologic and or inflammatory mechanisms and produces a clinical response like rash or swelling. Allergic reactions are somewhat rare and are about 10 to 15% of all responses. These reactions can be further divided into types 1, 2, 3, or 4 hypersensitivity reactions. Type 1 is immediate onset right after a drug is consumed, and types 2 through 4 are delayed onset anywhere from days to weeks after introduction to a medication. Drug hypersensitivity reactions are reactions resulting from in- unintended and unwanted stimulation of immune or inflammatory cells by a medication are 6 to 10% of all adverse drug reactions but 10 to percent of these could be fatal. So it is important to understand what the clinical effects are. Interesting. So what you're saying is that children can be allergic to excipients and dyes and not just the active ingredient of the medication. Correct. As mentioned previously, excipients can cause expected and unexpected reactions. Those reactions that are immune mediated are considered allergic responses. There are many patients that are also allergic to dyes and food colorings that are contained in medications. These reactions often result in rashes and itching, but can lead to more severe conditions like Steven Johnson syndrome or DRESS, which is drug rash with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms. Dyes and coloring serve two functions. The appropriate color is provided to a liquid or a chewable preparation to match the flavoring, and they may be providing a unique color pattern which enables the product to be identified. Most dyes and coloring agents used in the pharmaceutical industry belong to one of the following groups, azo dyes, quinolone dyes, triphenylmethane dyes, and xanthine dyes. Considering the widespread use of dyes in drugs and foods, there are only a few reports of adverse reactions attributed to them. There's also some literature citing that certain mixtures of dyes may have small but statistically significant effects on activity and attention in children. There are two meta-analyses by Nig et al. in 2012 and Sonnenbark et al. in 2013 that demonstrated that ADHD symptoms improved with a diet free of food dyes from children with and without behavior disorder. In response to this, the British government has encouraged the elimination of certain food dyes from medication, and the EU has warning labels in most dyed foods. In contrast to those actions, the FDA acknowledged that the use of these dyes may affect the behavior of some children with ADHD and other behavior problems, but has not yet mandated any strict requirements to eliminate them. However, they have restricted use of some specific dyes due to their allergenicity. So based on that, what are some of the most common excipients found in prescription or over-the-counter medications used for children? 
The best reference to date is the kids list, which we previously mentioned. The tables included in this document have drugs and excipients and the rationale for their inclusion in the list. The expected adverse drug reaction is provided for each excipient, as well as the recommended use for patients of specific age groups. I'll share a few specific examples of excipients and the information that was included from the kids list. Benzyl alcohol is used as a preservative in many injectables. It's noted to cause gasping syndrome in infants and should be avoided in neonates. But if unavoidable, the dose needs to be limited to 99 milligrams per kilo per day. Propylene glycol is another common additive. It's used as a drug solubilizer and water miscible co-solvent. It causes skin irritation like dermatitis or sensory irritation. And it's found in many topical products, injectables, as well as liquids and tablets. It can also be found in some vaping products. Polyethylene glycol is a hydrophilic polyether and has several uses. It's used as a surfactant, a dispersing agent, and it is the basis of some laxatives. We mostly recognize this as PEG, and it has a wide range of molecular weights between 3350 and 6000. PEG 3350 is the primary ingredient in many oral bowel preparations, but can also be found in film-coated tablets, topical gels, and parenteral steroids. PEG 5000 is used in PEG asparaginase to improve pharmacokinetics and lower immunogenicity. One thing to note about propylene glycol and polyethyl glycol is that their names are often confused. So in compounding pharmacies where both may be stored, it's important to ensure the correct product is used for preparation and dispensing. Another excipient, polysorbate 80, is used as a surfactant, a stabilizer, and emulsifier in the composition of cosmetics, industrial detergents, and in a wide variety of topical, oral, and parenteral drugs. Polysorbate 80 has been involved in the development of severe non-immunological reactions. In recent years, there have been reports of hypersensitivity and anaphylactic shock due to the high doses of polysorbates as excipients. Although such cases are rare, these data have renewed interest in ensuring that polysorbate 20 and polysorbate 80 be delivered to patient populations at safe and acceptable doses as excipients in biotherapeutic formulations. Today, it's recognized that the polysorbates are associated with injection and infusion site adverse events, hepatotoxicity, pseudoallergy, hypersensitivity reactions, and anaphylactic shock. Both polysorbate 20 and 80 are most frequently used excipients in biotherapeutics. The polysorbate content in therapeutic formulations that are administered to children, however, has been less clearly regulated or defined with regard to safety. In pediatric patients, excessive amounts of polysorbates in biotherapeutics have been linked to hypersensitivity and other toxicity-related effects. Two other excipients, polyparaben and methylparaben, or the parabens, are the most common preservatives in routinely prescribed oral formulations of drugs. The metabolic breakdown of parabens produces hydroparabenzoic acid, which has a chemical structure similar to acetylsalicylic acid. Although the paraben concentration in most medicinal preparations remains low and rarely exceeds 1% in susceptible individuals, an anaphylactic reaction may be precipitated with those with salicylate sensitivity. Such a reaction could manifest as urticaria or angioedema with a potential cardiopulmonary collapse. Hypersensitivity reactions to parabens, generally of the delayed type and appearing as contact dermatitis, have been reported. 
They occur more frequently when parabens are used topically, but also after oral administration. Immediate hypersensitivity reactions following injection of preparations containing parabens have also been reported. Food-derived substances are also used to protect or enhance the stability or bioavailability of drugs during the medication manufacturing process. One of the most common discussions is around vaccines cultured in eggs. The MMR vaccine is cultured in chick embryo fibroblasts, not the egg, so egg proteins are negligible. However, yellow fever vaccine is cultured in chick embryos and contains measurable amounts of egg protein. The influenza vaccine has been cultured on embryonated chicken eggs, and this method could theoretically lead to higher egg protein content. So those allergic to eggs must use caution. Peanut oil is included in some medicines as a solvent for sustained release intramuscular injections, vitamins, and hormones. It can also be found in topical emollients. Emulsions containing peanut oil have been used in enemas as a fecal softener and eardrops to soften earwax. Allergic reactions to the peanut protein are well-defined in the literature. Pharmaceutical-grade peanut oil is refined, and therefore, the peanut protein should be removed during the manufacturing process. However, it is possible that a very small amount of peanut protein may remain in a refined peanut oil. The most common dyes that cause allergic reactions are azoic dyes. These include tartrazine and sunset yellow, which can cause anaphylactoid reactions, angioedema, or urticaria. Azo dyes have a cross sensitivity with aspirin and can elicit an asthma attack in patients sensitive to aspirin. Because of these reactions, since 1980, the FDA has mandated labeling when tartrazine is used in any products. Triphenylmethane dyes, or blue dyes, can cause skin irritation, but are also known to cause bronchoconstriction in some patients. Brilliant blue and patent blue are the most used blue dyes in the pharmaceutical industry. Xanthine dyes, or red eosin dye, is a potent photosynthesizer. And indigo blue is another dye used in indigo carmine that can cause respiratory problems if inhaled and is a known irritant to skin and eyes. So how do I know what excipients are in medications? And what if it's a prescription medication that doesn't have the manufacturer label to refer to? Most over-the-counter medicines will have an inactive ingredient list on the package or label. The excipients that are of measurable quantities should be found there. However, it's uncommon to find the exact amount of an inactive ingredient as manufacturers regard this as protected trade information, kind of like printing the recipe on the box. For prescription medications that are dispensed in a bottle different from the manufacturer packaging, the drug information can be obtained from the pharmacist or the package insert can be searched online. Again, the package insert will have a list of the inactive ingredients, but may not necessarily provide the exact amount per dosage unit. Moreover, the acceptable tolerance levels of excipients and dyes are difficult to assess, especially in children. So even if we had the amounts, it's not always clear how much they will need before they have a reaction. There are not a lot of dose tolerance studies done for inactive ingredients, and studies specific to children are even more rare. Most information is gathered from historical data and case studies. Thanks, Tara. Can you describe how the excipients and dyes are regulated? Sure. Under current good manufacturing practice rules and regulations, it's the pharmaceutical manufacturer who is responsible for the quality of drug components, including the active ingredients, the excipients, and the dyes. 
Source countries of raw materials or excipients may have different regulatory guidelines than the U.S. or FDA for manufacturing safety. There is no FDA regulatory approval system that is exclusively applicable to pharmaceutical excipients. The FDA is responsible to regulate the list of dyes intended for use in the United States. These dyes must comply with chemical specifications, uses, restrictions, and labeling requirements as described in the Code of Federal Regulations in Title 21, Part 70 through 82. The regulations for the purity are specified in Part 74 and Part 82. IPEC, again, the International Pharmaceutical Excipients Council, is a global organization promoting consistent quality standards for pharmaceutical excipients. IPEC includes Americas, China, Europe, Canada, and Japan. IPEC was created to fill an unmet need to address challenges with pharmaceutical excipients and their impact on medicines and patients. Since its founding in 1991, IPEC America's focus has been on how excipients and their uses are identified, proven, and qualified for pharmaceutical use, how excipients are produced and protected throughout their distribution chain, and the functions they can provide in a finished pharmaceutical formulation to provide its quality and performance. This has led to IPEC development, publication, and in several instances, implementation of guidance on safety evaluation, good manufacturing processes, and good manufacturing auditing. It also has distribution auditing to determine an excipient's pedigree at every stage, an excipient certificate of analysis and master file, an excipient composition guidance and a stability program. Wow, this is definitely poses some concerns for our pediatric patients. How can we minimize exposure to excipients in the hospital setting if we don't have alternatives? And furthermore, what is your process for evaluating the risk versus benefit? One way to minimize exposure to some excipients is to use preservative-free and dye-free medications whenever possible. This may require talking to your department purchaser and pharmacy administration to explain why it's important to avoid certain preservatives, excipients, and dyes in children that are at high risk. In the hospital, we may use different branded products than parents use at home, and we could be introducing substances that the child may be sensitive or allergic to, which may further complicate a diagnosis or mask other symptoms. If there are no alternative medications, then we must be aware of the total daily dose of a given substance that a patient is receiving. This may be accomplished by looking at ingredient lists or calling drug manufacturers to determine how much of a substance is in a given vial or tablet or bottle. There are also some references online that provide dosing limits to include information from the FDA, NIH, and WHO. I am sure many with children are also concerned about this. What is the best thing for caregivers to do if their child is sensitive to certain excipients and or dyes so that they can ensure that they are not contained in the medications they take? Mostly talk with the pharmacist first. If it's an over-the-counter medication, then they can help review the labeling and package insert for inactive ingredients. The pharmacist may also have electronic resources and web links that provide more detailed information about the contents of a medication. Pharmacists may also have access to package information from prescription medications and can further provide information from that data. Well, thank you, Tara, for joining us for today's episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's pediatric resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings in the Pediatric Resource Center, including things such as disease-specific articles, 
guidelines, and webinars, as well as links for education and training. Thanks again for tuning in to this session and joining us here every Thursday, where we'll be talking with ASHP members and content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.